All right, we're going to get started. <clears throat> Good afternoon. Um, before I introduce our speaker today, I'll, I'll, I'll just read you a, uh, a line from Michael McCurdy's email to me, making sure that I was going to be here to introduce the speaker. His, it starts out, in your hood right now, at the Taj Mahal for sunrise. Beautiful and interesting country. I'm going to have to hear more about that when he comes back and, uh, and wonder why he thinks that's my hood. Um, but uh, he's, uh, he's still gallivanting around the world. Um, so that gives me the opportunity to introduce my good friend, Franco D'Alessio. So today we have the privilege of hearing about the pathobiology of sepsis from Dr. Alessio. He's a assistant professor at Johns Hopkins University, Johns Hopkins Hospital right down the road, and a good friend of the Division of Pulmonary Critical Care Medicine, but more importantly, a friend of mine. And today, he's going to share with us about some stuff about the pathobiology of sepsis. We, we hear a lot about kind of how to manage sepsis, but understanding where we're coming from and why we're hitting it in these different ways is incredibly important to being able to take better care of our patients. So without further delay, thank you so much, Franco, for coming and talking with us. Yeah, thank you so much. Uh, I appreciate it uh, for, for the invitation. Uh, I'm going to try to, my major objective is to try to make, uh, if, when reading about pathobiology of sepsis, and I, I think I sent an article, I was reviewing the article yesterday, and I was like, why did I, why did I give you guys this? This is incredibly uh, complicated. So my major objective is to try to make, uh, uh, try to make this biology understandable and, uh, and, and perhaps uh, uh, know where so certain different therapeutics are going in sepsis. Uh, so uh, we're, we're gonna try to mix the biology with a little bit of clinical, although if, if, if you already have a, a clinical sepsis talk, I can skip from, from some of for this. I'm, so I'm not sure if that's, uh, okay. No, I have no conflict of interest. So in, in 1992, um, uh, of course, the uh, uh, the American College of Chest Physicians, uh, uh, led by Bone, uh, came up with a criteria. And, and basically, this was done because yet today we hear our, our colleagues say, well, I don't think that patient looks septic. Or, and then you have somebody right next to it and say, well, I think he's septic. So I think we need, clearly, they, they came with some criteria that would have sort of decent sensitivity try to pick up patients with a systemic inflammatory response syndrome, and, and I, I don't have to go over those, but those are outlined here. And of course, when we talk about sepsis, we're talking about meeting the uh, uh, two or more of the serious criteria, plus an evidence of infection. And when I say evidence of infection, that doesn't mean there's a positive blood culture, because of course we know blood cultures take a while. So if you have somebody with a cellulitis, or somebody with pyuria in the urine, or a infiltrate on the chest X-ray, and you have serous, I think you can probably call that patient sepsis. Um, and then severe sepsis, of course, when there's signs of hypoperfusion, and we can talk, we, uh, uh, every single organ manifests differently, but, um, uh, um, and usually patients don't need vasopressors here, and of course it progresses to septic shock when there's um, hypertension refractory to fluids necessitating vasopressors. So here is a spectrum because sepsis, what it, 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 it of course, is untreated, will progress, to severe sepsis, septic shock, and ultimately uh, these patients die from multi-organ failure. And the numbers in parentheses show the mortality, uh, approximate mortality of, of each category. And of course, the, the, long, the, the more you move in this axis, in this direction, the higher your probability of not only death, but of course of having positive cultures uh, too. 
So patients who are septic who ultimately develop multi-organ failure have a mortality of greater than 80%. And of course, that's important uh, for pronostications and for, for talk to the family. Um, so the epidemiology of sepsis has changed. Uh, there's about 750,000 cases in the US a year. ARDS is about 200,000 cases. Uh, the impact uh, economics of sepsis is, is massive. It's $25 billion uh, a year. Uh, and uh, of course, uh, the incidence uh, seems to, uh, has not changed much in the in last few years. Uh, the, 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 um, uh, and, and perhaps there's, uh, the, the use of immunosuppressants, the aging population, which is more susceptible. There are a series of factors. There are certain pathogens that are becoming more virulent. So there's a host of factors that explain why the incidence has not changed or even perhaps increasing, actually, uh, over rate. The rate of mortality ranges anywhere from 20 to 50%, depending on the degree of severity. And of course, if you're, if you're in shock, uh, your mortality is 40 to 50% at least. Um, it is the most common cause of death in the ICU, in the medical ICU and surgical ICUs. Um, and then it's among the most common causes of admissions. We admit septic patients. It's almost our bread and butter. Uh, so the, the epidemiology has changed a little bit. I remember uh, uh, maybe 15 years ago, uh, it was mostly gram negatives now with with uh, staph uh, becoming a prevalent uh, uh, bacteria, not only in nosocomial, but, but, uh, but in the community, uh, the cases of gram-positive have increased, and they're almost matched the case of gram-negatives. And that's important because the empiric antibiotics we use uh, will tend to cover both, uh, both positive and negative bugs. And, and this is actually pretty concerning. Uh, the, the cases of fungal sepsis are increasing and uh, I'm not here to suggest that you should be starting antifungals on all your septic patients, but uh, it is very clear that a certain host deserves antifungal coverage empirically until proven otherwise. Uh, so I think just keep this in mind. And of course, uh, there's here I, I'm not mentioning viral causes, which we'll probably start seeing in, in the winter with, uh, with uh, respiratory viruses, influenza. And uh, it's important to to know also the, the resistant patterns in, in, your, in your hospital or near in the community uh, to tailor the antibiotics. Um, and, and certain outcomes, of course, if you develop sepsis nosocomially, uh, your outcomes are worse than community. The, the older population tends to do worse, and not only in sepsis, but also in ARDS, which is something that I study in the lab. And I'll talk a little bit about uh, some of the biology of ARDS that is relevant to sepsis. Uh, of course, uh, host response. It, it's important that we often uh, a lot of a lot of providers um, almost rule out sepsis when there's no fever. And, and I think I don't need to tell this audience that uh, fever is not necessary. Particularly the elderly people are not going to mount a fever, or somebody's on steroids are not going to mount a fever. So just don't, don't use necessarily fever uh, or high white count. Sometimes you, of course, they're all leukopenia. Uh, underlying comorbidities, sites of infection. And there's an important genetics that uh, we are beginning to understand certain polymorphisms in genes that uh, predispose us to sepsis. So uh, I think what's important is to, to realize that there is a uh, interaction between the host and the pathogen. And um, so there are... Um, um, certain patterns of recognition proteins called, um, called, called PRPs. 
And uh, there are several types. The most common ones that you need to know about are toll-like receptors. Uh, there are other receptors, intracellular, like knot receptors, uh, rig receptors. I don't think you need to remember all this. I think the toll-like receptors are important because there are actually certain therapeutics that are evolving trying to target toll-like receptors or TLRs. So what are TLRs? So TL, uh, there are TLR receptors in the surface of cells. And mo most commonly, uh, macrophages, monocytes, epithelial cells, but a lot of, a lot of cells will express toll-like receptors, which basically recognize proteins in, in microbes, parasites, viruses. So there are membrane receptors, and in humans, there are 10 types of TLRs, 1 to 10, in mouse, 1 to 13, if you care to know about that. But basically, the, the one that is most commonly studied is TLR4, toll-like receptor 4, which recognizes what? Anybody knows in the audience? LPS. Yeah, LPS, exactly. So lipopolysaccharide, which is highly expressed in, um, in gram-negative uh, bacteria. Uh, so, and, and there are intracellular toll-like receptors like TLR3, 7, and 9, which recognize either DNA, RNA, and those are important to mount that host innate immune response against viruses or intracellular pathogens. So this is important. There's a, a table here. I'm happy to provide this presentation so you guys have it. You need, of course, need to memorize. But there are certain bacterias that recognize certain toll receptors. For example, gram-positives will tend to look, go to TLR2, gram-negative TLR4, viruses, the intracellular TLRs. So just know that. So when the TLR gets engaged with the, the, chorus, the co-ligand in the bacteria, there is an initiation of a cascade, a lot of biology, and that's not my intention to tell you exactly what happens, but basically there are adapter proteins. You're going to hear MYD88, TRAP1, IRAC, all this stuff. It doesn't really matter. It signals and it activates this transcription factor, which I think you probably need to be aware of, NF-kappa-B which is an important transcription factor that usually sits in the cytosol and it's, it's re really uh, not doing much, uh, but when it gets activated, uh, it goes inside the nucleus and it actually um, uh, is a transcription factor for almost 150 genes. And those 150 genes uh, are a myriad of genes that are involved in the in immune response so you activate a lot of the pro-inflammatory cascade. We're talking about TNF-alpha, IL-1, IL-6. And then what's important here is that you also activate uh, anti-inflammatory pathways, for example, IL-10. So let me give you an example that goes back to animals that helps uh, elucidate why TLRs are important. So there is a concept of septic patients have perhaps an enhanced expression of toll-like receptors. Um, and certain danger signals that get released with dead tissues can certainly also activate toll-like receptors. Uh, um, so, for example, there, uh, 50 years ago, somebody discovered there is a strain of mice called CH3. Uh, there are mice that are, have a mutation in toll-like receptor 4, and they are resistant to LPS. So they were trying to kill these mice with intrapretineal LPS. They were giving massive doses. Couldn't get the mice to die. And so that's interesting. But this, this exact mice, if you give them five bacteria, five gram-negative bacteria that have, L, that have, of course, LPS that act for TLR4, 
they, they, they succumb, they die. So, so, so just to get, so that example just exemplifies that although if you have excessive toll-like receptor signaling and massive innate immune response that contributes to sepsis, that same pathway, and this is gonna apply for anything that I talk for right now, any pathways that I talk in sepsis, this same pathway is critical also for, for um, clearing the bacteria. So for example, in this mice, yeah, they don't react to LPS, which is, you just grab LPS, but there's no bacteria, it's just sterile. It's not really sterile, but it's L just LPS. Those mice are resistant. But you give them the bacteria, they can't clear the bacteria and they die. So the same, the same cascade that we think is related to excessive innate immune response also has potent reparative and anti-inflammatory uh, pathways that are important to avoid collateral damage and clear the bacteria. Is there any question about that? So I think what happens in sepsis or in systemic inflammatory response is you want to have an initial, initial innate immune response to uh, the, the bacteria or the fungus uh, to clear it. Of course, that's important. But when it gets dysregulated and there's collateral damage and, and of course, uh, effects systemically, that's, that's when uh, we develop sepsis. Uh, so, for example, this, in this case, there will be a microbial product or endotoxin that activates uh, the innate immune system, so macrophages, neutrophils, the endothelium has become a very important, uh, and the epithelium, the endothelium and epithelium, the epithelium, for example, in the lung, and I'll talk about an example of ARDS so you understand also some of the cascade. The endothelium also senses a lot of mic microbial products, has toll-like receptors, and becomes active and uh, upregulates um, selectins that um, make neutrophils uh, roll in and transmigrate to the sites of inflammation. There is a, a potent activation of the coagulation cascade. Uh, the, there is a, a lot of uh, procoagulant and problems with the fibrinolytic pathways. So for example, we, uh, if we're old enough, we're aware that activating protein C was uh, quite often used in patients, severe sepsis patients, until multiple studies, including the prowess studies, show that uh, perhaps the, the, it was not beneficial and it was actually got off the market. I mean, this was a $10,000 drug uh, or six, $7,000 a day drug that, that, was, uh, that we were giving to our patients. Um, so I think the, 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 the pathophysiology of the coagulation cascade is, is um, is, uh, is, is, uh, is complicated and I think we have not yet quite known what to target. For example, uh, the endothelium secretes von Willenberg factor uh, when it's activated. And von Willenberg factor is, is in, in very large multimers. And what cleaves that large von Willenberg factor? Everybody knows? We actually detect this in certain patients that come to our ICU who are sick with renal failure, neurological problems, traumacytopenia. Which one? Yeah, Adams 13. So Adams 13 cleaves the multi, uh, the, the big multi-dimer uh, von Willerven into small pieces. And in sepsis, there is a, an acquired condition where Adams 13 is not enough. And actually you have this 
large von Willemer factor uh, release in the circulation, it doesn't get cleave, and it causes procoagulation. So there is a formation of microthrombi that contributes to tissue uh, ischemia, hypoperfusion, and all that. So there's another uh, pathway not described here where there, the mito mitochondria get uh, completely stunned in the, at, the, at the, of course, subcellular uh, tissues. And, and this is why um, shock, some, when we talk about shock, it's a, it's a condition of tissue hypoxia. And then really, there is a cellular cytopathic effect of sepsis in the mitochondria where the ele electron transport cascade gets affected. And, and of course, the, the metabolism is, is, is switched. And, and uh, that's one of the reasons, of course, we get uh, increased lactic acid. So, um, the, the innate immune system gets activated and the film gets activated. The coagulation system gets activated. The fibrinolytic uh, system is decreased. There are secretions of uh, uh, anti-inflammatory cytokines, chemokines that attract neutrophils, activated monocytes. There is uh, uh, induction of, of nitric oxide synthetase, which increases nitric oxide, and that causes vasodilation, and that is part of the reason why patients develop shock. Um, and, uh, and of course, uh, you have also, as I mentioned to you, uh, activation of the anti-inflammatory cascade and there an, an apoptosis of certain cells like lymphocytes. So uh, Hotchkiss work and others show that there is a profound immunoparalysis when patients are septic. So patients initially are septic can be can be uh, at risk for developing infections in the ICU is because they're, they have a, a certain immunosuppression from lymphocyte apoptosis and from excessive anti-inflammatory uh, mediators. And then, of course, if this cascade gets, gets uh, um, uh, ongoing, there is a multi-organ failure. This is just uh, similar for what I described with, with more mediators, more complicated. I think I, I cover most of this. So um, there are, of course, uh, uh, there are host factors, there are pathogenic factors. There are certain bacteria that are, are certainly going to be more virulent. Uh, for example, uh, uh, patients who present with post-influenza um, necrotizing pneumonia and leukopenia, you should be thinking that the patient probably has MRSA that is producing a PVL toxin, which is incredibly toxic to leukocytes. So these patients, and, and we've seen them all, and I hope we don't get them this year, but they have whopping ARDS, they come with necrotizing pneumonia after a, a bad cold or after influenza, and they, their, their, count, their white count is 2,000 or 1,000. You're like, what's going on here? And it's they have MRSA, PVL. Um, of course, uh, bacteria resistant to antibiotics, like we, at least at Hopkins, we tend to do vanxosin to everybody who presents with sepsis. And I think it's important to realize that if that patient has had, for example, a resistant bacteria or an ESVL, I think about the, the choice of antibiotic and the resistance of the, of the bug. They are, of course, host factors. Uh, a certain, I mentioned to you, uh, there is a, li a long list of polymorphisms in certain genes that predispose to developing obsessives or worse outcomes in sepsis in the TLR pathway, in the coagulation pathway. And th this is the list I was talking to you. There's, there are uh, innumerable counts, and they keep adding every time. 
So what are some of the systemic effects uh, in, in uh, that sepsis causes? So uh, there, of course, I mentioned to you, there is activation of the immune system. There's nitric oxide release, there's vasodilation, there's shock. A lot of those mediators release are cardiodepressants. For example, the classical one is TNF-alpha. There's another factor called MIF or macrophage inhibitor factor. There are numerous in, uh, factors that are cardiodepressants, and a lot of our patients who present with shock, septic shock, uh, part of the reason they're in shock is because they're, 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 they have a new cardiomyopathy, and it's all due to sepsis. You do an echo, the REF is 20%, and, uh, and then, of course, once they, if they survive sepsis, you, you get a repeat echo, and the, 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 most of the times that cardiomyopathy is reversible, but there are a lot of um, factors that cause a sepsis-induced cardiomyopathy. Um, I, I skipped the brain here, but uh, a lot of our patients, especially early, will present with a decreased sensorium, and that's just sepsis encephalopathy. They just drop the sensorium, they don't necessarily mount a fever, maybe they have a little white count, and probably have sepsis, urosepsis or something. That's a classical presentation of the elderly. Um, there's a massive activation in endothelium, the endothelium becomes apoptotic, it becomes activated, it, upregulates receptor selectins that, that make neutrophils roll in. Um, of course, uh, acute kidney injury, uh, microthrombi in the kidneys is a common presentation of some of our patients. And, and this, of course, carries a worse prognosis. The, the, um, the risk of, of worse outcomes, in not just in sepsis, but in the ICU is when you have acute renal, acute kidney injury is worse than if your kidneys are preserved. Uh, there is a, a, a barrier dysfunction at the level of the gut, too, that predisposes to uh, translocation, that in conjunction with the immunosuppression, immunoparalysis uh, for second infections. Um, um, of course, there is important work on critical illness myopathy. This is very well described in our ICU patients. We, uh, we help them survive, and they are weak for months, up to years. This happens particularly when you have ARDS but it also happens in prolonged ICU stays, sepsis. And there is uh, one of my colleagues, uh, uh, Clark Files, who is at Wake Forest, has done some beautiful biology work of how the trauma that gets spilled, he had a model of ARDS in animals where there was, he could not detect any, so he injected, a, for example, live bacteria or LPS in the lungs measured there was no LPS in the bloodstream, so it was all focal. But all that biotrauma, all those cytokines, uh, spill over the, the systemic circulation and cause muscle atrophy. And he was able to measure uh, 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 muscle atrophy just from a, from, from a model of, of, the, of ARDS with no LPS extravasation, no bacterial extravasation. Um, and and that, that, that biology is, is, is actively being pursued while patients develop critical is myopathy. And of course, hematological, uh, there are, I mentioned to you, lymphocyte apoptosis, uh, macrophages uh, get deactivated, they don't present MHC class two, uh, and there is, of course, um, uh, other effects and on platelets, uh, too, that are important. There's another uh, important thing, that there are a concept that neutrophils, uh, when they are activated and they want to uh, encounter bacteria, they produce um, um, uh, something called nets, uh, neutrophil extracellular traps. So it is this chromatin histone-rich mesh that sort of engulfs the bacteria. 
And there's been very little work that those nets are critical for uh, uh, fighting off infections. But what's also known is that patients with sepsis or, or uh, severe sepsis have an overactivation of nets, even if even on sterile, even if you have, even if you've cleared the bacteria with antibiotics, those neutrophils are still activated by other mechanisms, and that net actually can have collateral damage. So it, although this is another example where you have something that's useful for suffering, but when it's exuberant, it causes collateral damage. So that there's important concepts, and there's there's trying to develop targets against nets on patients, for example, with overwhelming sepsis. I think I mentioned uh, uh, that this overt activation of the coagulation system, the ADAMS-13, the lack of ADAMS-13, the problems with protein C and S, and of course there's been intensive investigation by drug companies, and, and we mentioned this example of activated protein C. Uh, which is now off the market, but I, I think there are certain targets, and they're target, trying to target tissue factors, they're trying to target other things. Uh, there are uh, sort, some trials using inhaled, uh, for example, heparin uh, for patients with ARDS because there is well-known activation of the correlation system in the lung, which I'll mention in a little bit. So. I, I am a, I'm a pulmonary, ARDS is my passion, that's where I spend most of my work, so I figure I, I mentioned uh, some of the cascade that happens in ARDS, in ARDS which is very, it's, it actually is um, comparable to what happens in other organs uh, uh, in, in sepsis. So, uh, of course, this is the, the alveolar capillary membrane, and um, there is either a indirect insult or direct insult. And um, you have uh, type 1 cells, type 2 cells, macrophages, endothelium. So this is, of course, healthy and um, um, where oxygen and CO2 um, transport uh, diffusion happens. So when, when there is an, an insult, uh, you have activation uh, of type 2 cells, you have activation of macrophages, you have activation of endothelial cells. There is uh, a, 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 the innate immune response reacts producing pro-inflammatory cytokines, chemokines. This attracts neutrophils. The endothelium upregulates the selectins that I mentioned to you. Neutrophils migrate to the inflammatory tissue. There is, of course, uh, uh, capillary leakage, which is common when there is inflammation. And the, the lung of the alveolar gets flooded with protein-rich fluid. Uh, the epithelium gets denuded. Uh, there is a lack of production of surfactant, and of course, the uh, surface tension decreases, and that's why the reason you get shunt in ARDS. And of course, this this is a uh, there is also deposition of collagen. There's fibrocytes that activate that get activated and, and travel to the inflammatory tissue and start depositing collagen and, and extracellular matrix. And, uh, and there is intensive inflammation uh, with, with, with uh, ARDS. Uh, and therefore, this is some of the pathophysiology that I described. So I'm just going to mention a little bit of how what we took some of the, this pathobiology and tried to dissect some mechanisms to try to help or understand what happens in ARDS. So we took animals, we intubate them, we gave them uh, bacteria with LPS or uh, or, li uh, or live bacteria or viruses, 
And then we follow responses over time. So we um, took, these are long H&E sections where we uh, inject LPS and we follow over time, day one, day four, day seven, day 10. And you can see that by the first three or four days, this is where intense inflammation happens. There's consolidation, there's neutrophils, there's about a 20% mortality in this model. And then by day seven, 10, those animals resolve, uh, they're back to normal. So when we did this model, we start studying very simple questions, saying what happens if I just do a BAL of those animals and look at what cells migrate to the alveolar space? And of course, we saw a big influx of cells, peaked around day four, by day 10, they were almost gone. A lot of neutrophils, by day 10, they were gone, which is a cornerstone step of resolution of inflammation in any organ. You need those neutrophils, they need to go away uh, for resolution of inflammation. And then we saw macrophages, lymphocytes, and then of course we asked the question, what are those lymphocytes doing in the alveolar space? So we uh, did a very simple experiment. We grabbed wild type animals that are normal, and we grabbed their transgenic or knockout animals that lack lymphocytes. So they're identical, you can distinguish them. Uh, they grow normally, but this guy right here doesn't have any lymphocytes. So we challenged them to our model, we gave them LPS, and you can see that they're pretty inflamed at day four. But if you look later stages, by day four, by day 10, those wild-type animals had completely resolved their lung inflammation. They were healthy. The mice that had lung lymphocytes had unremitting lung inflammation, lack of repair. Uh, so then we asked the question is, can we give back the transfusion of cells to restore the defect? And that's what we did. We grabbed lymphocyte-deficient animals, started giving them different subtypes of lymphocytes, we noted that only a very specific type of cell, a subtype of CD4 cells, was able to restore or repair or resolve the inflammation. And this is a, uh, a type of CD4 cell named regulatory T cells or Tregs. So you're going to hear a lot about Tregs because they're they're hot right. They're, well, they've been hot for a while, but uh, Tregs are also again everything we look in biology is the yin yang. We Tregs are important suppressing the immune system, but you'll hear about they suppress too much the immune system, you get immunoparalysis. Or if they're too abundant in, can for example, in cancer tissues, they evade the immune system and the cancer grows. So again, it's, it's all how you tightly manipulate the biology at the right moment, at the right time, in the right patient. And this is why a lot of the biologicals don't apply to everybody. Like we, I personally think for complicated matters, everybody's going to get a standard treatment, but you're going to have, we're going to have to personalize some of the medicine. We're going to have to phenotype our patients uh, if we want to especially deliver uh, uh, biological targets. But anyway, there's some hope that T-Rex could be important, and we're actually setting up some studies with epigenetic drugs that uh, enhance T-Rex function for ARDS, and uh, I, I think Nirav knows that we're trying to get some money from the Department of Defense. Uh, we're still uh, struggling with the IND, uh, but we'll get there. And they're in humans too. So this is just a, a of course you can't read this, but this is just to show that there are, there's intense investigation. Uh, I mean, almost a million cases a year of sepsis in the US. There's intense investigation to try to uh, new, find new targets for sepsis. Uh, but I think from our standpoint of view, I don't need to tell you this, but what, what we have learned is, you're gonna hear about river study, you're gonna hear about all this. I think what's important here is that we treat sepsis like we, like you all treat shock trauma. 
you know, you have that golden hour, that famous golden hour, you should apply the same for sepsis. And I think, yes, we can talk about biology for two more days, but I think the most important message is you, you treat sepsis like an MI, you treat sepsis like shock trauma, you want to resuscitate that patient fast, you want to be hanging antibiotics fast. That's probably the most important message. So I think there is some weak data, but hence some data that uh, delaying antibiotics, uh, of course, increases mortality. And so 21% uh, in the first hour versus almost 60% if you delay by six hours. So, uh, I mean, this is small numbers, but I think it's supportive that we want to, and it makes sense. And I think that's where the success of Rivers, like we're aware of Rivers. Rivers was a single center study that showed decreased mortality. But I think more than that complicated algorithm, which I have here, is more they got into the patients like a code. You, you, they alerted sepsis, they had a 10 alert team that went to the patient, they got lined up, resuscitated antibiotics, they, they jumped on the patient. And I think that's the message, is you want to jump on that septic patient. And, and I, I, I personally feel pretty anal in my ICU. If I have a septic patient, I, uh, that, those antibiotics get ordered stabbed. And uh, of course, uh, as important as antibiotics is the source control. So you want to find, because you can give antibiotics, but if you're not taking care of the source, that you're not going to achieve much. And let me give you an example. We had a patient in the, in the MICU who, um, elderly gentleman from a nursing home who was, um, got transfer um, uh, and, and the patient was getting antibiotics, not getting better. And um, we were just wondering where the source is. And it is funny how physical exam sometimes is important in the ICU. Sometimes like we, yeah, we put the stethoscope, we don't hear it. We hear breath sounds from the, from the vent. And usually physical exam is not as important in the, in the ICU as in the, as in the wards and the outpatient. But this patient was, uh, it's funny because we were, I was examining his belly. And so a little redness here, and when we exposed the genitals, this patient was having clearly a four-year gangrene. And, 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 and clearly, he wasn't getting better. We were giving antibiotics. He had some infiltration in the lung, thinking it was pneumonia, but the source was right there. And of course, that patient didn't end up surviving, but, but I think source control is, is, is critical. Always think where the source is. Uh, if I need an imaging, if I, what, or if I need any drainage, if I need to get my surgical colleagues to uh, intervene, I, I think you need to be very aggr aggressive about that. And, and of course, these are some of the techniques we use uh, for source control. Um, so I mentioned to you that there is uh, tissue hypoxia, there is mitochondrial uh, in, in bad, there's a mitochondrial problem where the electron micro, uh, micro, uh, transport is impaired. So why not deliver supernormal oxygen delivery? So if there's tissue hypoxia, let's just crank up that cardiac output. Let's crank up that hemoglobin. Give a lot of oxygen. Well, uh, this was actually done by Gadinoni, and, and actually the, the uh, trying to uh, increase the oxygen transportation or delivery in, in ICU patients and. And it, it, it hasn't shown any improved mortality, if, if at all, the mortality probably was, was the outcomes were a little worse on the, on the intervention arm. So, so I think it's important that sometimes, uh, and, and the biology is, the, don't get me wrong, I, I love physiology, but sometimes trying to correct physiology is not the way to go. And, and this is the same for oxygen goes. Like we, oh, I think we overdo it with oxygen. We deliver 
we want our patients to have 100% SATs, 98% SATs, and perhaps uh, oxygen. We know that excessive oxygen is, is toxic, and we know that some degree of hypoxemia actually uh, upregulates a lot of anti-inflammatory pathways, and by us giving oxygen, perhaps we blunt that. So just be conscious of that. Uh, we, we need trials, we need things like this, this clearly show that this was not useful. This is the classical reverse algorithm that I mentioned to you uh, that's showing decrease in mortality. This has not been replicated, uh, not to my knowledge. I think there's been multiple trials, multi-center trials, and it hasn't been replicated. But I think the key is the early, the early intervention and, and not the complicated algorithm. And of course, additional considerations. I think, uh, um, I think there's enough good evidence that if, you're, if you have somebody in the ICU who you are venting uh, and they're sick uh, or they're at risk to develop sepsis or they have sepsis or they're in the OR, there's enough good evidence that, that patient needs lung protective ventilation. That patient, we should be targeting six to eight mils per K. Uh, and I think there's in, enough data that most of my patients, if not all, have that range of, of lung protective ventilation. They, I, I don't, I don't think anybody does here, but I don't, I don't give tire, generous tidal volumes. Um, unless, of course, there's a, if you, your patient is incredibly asynchronous and has ARDS, you could perhaps liberalize uh, if the plateau pressures are not elevated. Or, uh, or now I'd argue that that patient should be paralyzed based on the on new evidence. So if your patient is very asynchronous, has ARDS, I, I tend to paralyze them uh, earlier on for 48 hours. Um, um, the glucose control is interesting. Uh, we always quote that New England paper uh, 50, 10, 15 years ago. I think it was a, an intern when this came out, or, or a jar, and we were using tight insulin control and everybody. But it's interesting, this population was mostly post-surgical patients. Uh, it hasn't really panned out in the ICU. But we, we of course, tend not to have the, that uh, glycemic control out of control. But uh, and there is, of course, early renal replacement, although the data there is not very good. There is very good data that all our ICU patients that are intubated um, should receive stress ulcer prophylaxis, deep vein thrombosis, head of, head of the bed elevated, which is free, and everybody, in my mind, should, should be on. So, um, and I guess I brought a little case scenario. I, I think it's uh, just to depict what the management is. I think we... Uh, you can skip this. I, so, again, I, I've mentioned to you a, a, a synopsis of, of the cascade, of the complicated cascade in sepsis, and all the effects on different organs. I think, uh, again, the early treatment is critical, source control, appropriate antibiotics. Um, of course, there's some, some uh, literature there to support uh, what I've talked about. And I think that's all I have for you. Um, Take any questions? So I guess early, early is always good, but looking at sort of the failure of the myriad of both sort of exquisitely biologically oriented trials, uh, like IL-6 25 years ago, there's TNF blockers, and you go through the list of the 35, and the recent failure, uh, what many would call failure, the Early goal directed, arguably maybe the whole standard came up. Early, we need what? Is this an antibiotic that was 
Yeah, no, that, you bring a good point. I, I think uh, a lot of those uh, biologics have intervened. Um, um, it, it's complicated. I think blocking one single mediator is, is not the answer. Uh, uh, and I mentioned the example, there's been agonists against TLR4, for example, that ha they have not worked. And I mentioned some of the examples that you need, those, those same pathways that cause severe sepsis or, or contribute severe sepsis are also critical for their, 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 their op opposite effects. So I don't know what the answer is. I, I, I'll be honest with you. I, I think we, personally, I think we need to target, um, and, and, and I don't want to confuse the audience. I, I, biologically, I think we need to target later events. We need to target res resolution reparative pathways. Because when our patients present, I think the window is, is off. The window, acute window, the early inflammatory events have already initiated intervening there. It's probably, and this is why we set up ourselves to failure when we translate therapies. I, you read all the animal models, and we're not talking about just sepsis, ERDS, any animal models. We intervene on, our, on the pathway, on our gene. We give those animals therapy at the same time they're getting the injury or before the injury. And yeah, we publish great papers and say, this works, this resolves ARDS, this resolves sepsis, but that's unrealistic. I think at least uh, what we do in our lab is we challenge that paradigm and say, we are gonna do rescue treatments. We are not gonna pre-treat, we're not gonna treat at the same time of injection. We wanna rescue because that's how most of our patients present. Yeah, there is a group of early ALI, for example, early sepsis, where you can have that window. But most of our patients are outside of the window. So my bias is we need to intervene on, on reparative resolution pathways. That's where we are. I can't answer your question about the, the, the lack of, when, when I say early, I'm trying to encourage the young minds here to not sit for six hours and before we do antibiotics, source control, I don't know why there's so much conflicted data that rivers came out and every other study has been negative. I am not sure, I'll be honest with you, I'm, I'm not sure. I don't know if there's heterogeneity of the patients, but I'll be honest with you, I don't know. Uh, rivers, the, the comparative analysis is with the mortality of the control uh, was extraordinary, right? Correct. If you went to Detroit receiving or you know, where they did that, my guess is there were people who were treated as a virtual ICU equivalent in the ED and were managed as expeditiously as could be imagined. Everyone else got the medical admitting officer, they went to the floor, there was inordinate delays. So the discrepancy of mortality for a single single trial, but in looking I guess at the recent trial that would suggest early goal directed, it would seem that the bar has been elevated, but you know, as a PG-33, it's interesting because the, the discussion <laughs> as an intern where we used to dump grams of steroids, ibuprofen, uh, indomethacin, I mean, there was all these little concoctions. It's just depressing, I guess, if you will, that 33 years later, the, the answer and Kumar study, again, we were a participant in that, and it's probably more of a retrospective study with a lot of database. So, I mean, the prospective validation probably is clear, but um, it's just striking that fluids, and you know, now we know we give too many fluids, you probably kill people by doing that. Yep. And it's really antibiotic. So, it raises a question, and the only thing that conventionally is available now, I would say, is steroids. So, do you have any thoughts given the immunomodulatory? You know, the anti-inflammatory response when you need it, when you give it, is, are you all given 
steroids? No, we we reserve the steroids. We don't we don't coach team anybody. We don't test the adrenal axis, of course. Uh, I, I think, uh, and again, this the, the data is not great, but if 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 you have a catecholamine resistant shock and you're increasing doses of norepinephrine or dopamine, that's when we we think about steroids and give them pro, give them empirically. Uh, now the evidence behind that is not great either, but uh, we, we don't give steroids to everybody. But but it's interesting that I, I still feel, feel like it's, and I don't know about sepsis, but in the ARDS, we, we, us who have treated ARDS, where you have this uh, patients that don't really, they're stuck on 60%, 10 of PEEP, and they don't really respond, they're seven days into the ARDS. I, 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 I know the data that hasn't shown increased mortality, but I, I challenge some of those patients with steroids. Some of those patients in two days are extubated, and some patients don't. So I'm not going to say there's magic bullets here, but there are, there's a subtype of patients that we're not capturing that respond to corticosteroids. And I just don't know where the answer is. I don't know if they have differential receptors, they have a steroid responsive process, but I, I think we need to personalize a little bit uh, uh, what we do. I, I'll mention to you, for, for example, I, I'm, I'm participating in a study where we're enrolling uh, patients with Sears, and they, this company in Australia has a, a blood test. So they basically did microarrays of the PBMCs, and they were able to get four genes, two that got upregulated, two that got downregulated, that could differentiate between Sears and sepsis, which I thought was pretty neat because, I mean, sometimes we overdo it with antibiotics, or we don't know when to stop antibiotics. So they, they enroll like 300 patients. They have beautiful, I have some of the presentation here. They have beautiful data that dissects serous and sepsis and they have a score. And they went to us because their population of African-American patients was like 1%. So the FDA said, yeah, your study looks, your blood test is called septicide. It looks very promising, but you need to recruit African-Americans to see if it, it, so that's what we're doing. We're doing that. and. So we're making some advances, but I, that's one example of like, we, we, I think we need to personalize medicine. We, this is, a therapy like a biological is not gonna work for everybody. It's not gonna work for everybody.